0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters,
1: the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Biden administration will ask Congress for $80 billion for the Internal Revenue Service. That money would go mostly to plus-up enforcement efforts. GovExec reports IRS Commissioner Charles Reddig says the government may be missing out on up to a $1 trillion a year because it doesn't have enough people to perform audits. The full Senate will vote on the nomination of Kiran Ahuja to be the next director of the Office of Personnel Management. All the Republican Senators on the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Subcommittee voted against Ahuja. GovExec reports the final vote was seven to five. The Defense Department will let employees use their own cell phones to access DOD networks, according to Acting DOD Chief Information Officer John Sherman. Sherman says DISA, the agency headquarters, and branches are all working with his office to find secure ways for employees to access DOD 365. FedScoop reports DOD 365 will be a parallel to the commercial virtual remote platform. The Technology Modernization Fund has a billion dollars from the latest coronavirus relief bill, and it could get another half billion when the next budget comes out. A Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs subcommittee hearing Tuesday looked at IT costs and solutions for the future. Casey Coleman is Senior Vice President of Global Government Solutions at Salesforce. She's former Chief Information Officer at the General Services Administration. She was a witness at that hearing. Casey, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What was the message you wanted to take to the subcommittee at that hearing?
2: Two things, Francis. And first, it's great to see you. Thanks for the chance to be on today. First is that The need for modernization is more urgent than ever. COVID has proved that the organizations that can deliver successfully to their customers or to their constituents are the ones that have moved online and embraced digital services. Uh, The second is that the the need is going to be uh, addressed through the technology modernization fund. It really is a generational opportunity because as you know, most IT dollars go into the upkeep and maintenance of existing systems leaving very little for innovation and modernization. So I'm hopeful that this will prove to be an opportunity to make a decisive step forward.
1: Toward the end of your written testimony, you make a number of suggestions that I wanted to ask you about. First thing, you, you name checked a couple of the major pieces of IT legislation over the years. And what jumped out at me is the age of these things relative to the technology that they're supposed to govern for the executive branch. You mentioned klinger Cohen. 1996, it's 25 years old. EGov Act of 2002, that's 19 years old. Even the FISMA modernization bill is now, I think, headed toward a decade old. What's the implication for that for a practitioner in the executive branch that's working to comply with legislation that's a ton older than the technology it's supposed to be modernizing to?
2: That is a great point. And Technology always moves faster than policy and legislation, but these laws represent a really outdated approach to both developing and deploying and securing systems. If you think about Cleaner Cohen, it came around before Y2K, so that is, uh, before a lot of people were even in IT. So all of these things need to be looked at with a fresh eye toward the technology that enables the, the world's largest companies, manufacturers and retailers to deliver services. I think it's, it's time to take a fresh look at all the legislation and not only to employ new regulations and laws, but also to free agencies up from complying with things that don't make any sense anymore.
1: That seems to be the ongoing thread, Casey, that I hear from your successors, not specifically GSA, but CIOs across government is we're checking boxes that don't have any relevance to any of the things that we're doing today. Is that maybe more important, that piece of removing some of the compliance pieces rather than changing the regulation model that exists today to something that fits what's going on today, maybe pulling some of that stuff back so IT leaders and security leaders can focus on actually modernizing and securing the functions of their organizations.
2: Oh, yeah, without a doubt, Francis, because there's an opportunity cost. Spending time on these box checking exercises takes time and focus away from modernization activities. And it also puts us in a place of complying with things that don't make sense. And in the, in the last year, you've seen a lot of those things relaxed. So for example, telehealth services, which weren't really embraced because of a lot of regulation, were were rolled out broadly across uh, the VA, for example, and other agencies. Uh, Medicaid started allowing reimbursement across state lines so you could see your doctor, even if you were quarantining someplace else. And and all of that was goodness. Uh, You also saw agencies using digital signatures instead of requiring physical signatures. So the ability to just be freed from that kind of old-fashioned and out-of-date approach is really
1: significant. You uh, mentioned in, uh, among these suggestions to the committee, uh, you reference uh, the uh, modernization framework that ACT-IAC presented, and you referenced that you uh, worked on that, uh, were a member of that. And you say, we suggest the creation of an agile first policy, similar to the cloud first policy of the Obama administration. From your position in industry, do you still see an appetite for waterfall projects, Casey, that it's necessary to put out an agile first policy?
2: I do, and for a couple of reasons. Agile first, in in our thinking, is not just pertaining to technology. Although I do think that agile technology is the way to go. The, the only time you see waterfall and uh, old fashioned approaches is really when you have systems that were built that way and have to be maintained that way. Uh, No one uses that in in creating something new or in modernizing. But agile is also a broader idea about policies that affect how we do procurement, how we do budgeting, how we do hiring. All of these things need to be agile. And by by being agile, we're uh, inferring that uh, doing things in parallel rather than serially, uh, doing things with a minimum viable policy framework so that agile becomes the default position, not the last alternative when you have no other
3: choices.
1: We have less than a minute left. You mentioned the Technology Modernization Fund as a generational opportunity. What has to happen and who has to do what to maximize the potential of that opportunity, Casey?
2: The first thing I would say is have a plan, a modernization plan that's socialized and aligned, not just for a single investment, but across the whole portfolio. And get alignment and buy-in from leadership at the political and SES level and submit those business cases because modernization is a team sport. Uh, You can see the example of success at the US Department of Agriculture, which rolled out farmers.gov to really put all ag services in one place for farmers, ranchers, and producers. That kind of customer first and employee first thinking is what's gonna lead to successful modernization.
1: Casey, it's great to see you again. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Francis.
1: Can find a link to her testimony at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, a radioactive tsunami from a new Russian weapon straight ahead on government matters, the real threat and a lasting solution. You're watching WJLA twenty four-seven. Welcome back. The Russian military is testing a weapon called the Poseidon missile that could threaten the west coast of the United States. Former Assistant Secretary of State Christopher Ford says the weapon could generate radioactive tsunamis. Chris Ford is now Senior Advisor for Geopolitical uh, Policy and Strategy at MITRE. Chris, welcome. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. That really sounds terrible. Radioactive tsunamis. How serious is this threat from Russia?
4: Well, I mean, I, I, I speak only for m- me personally, but it's certainly something that would uh, would disturb me if I lived in an American coastal city that the Russians are you know, rather explicitly threatening with this new device. Uh, I, it's worth saying, I mean, from a military perspective, um, you know, purely from a sort of war fighting and military capabilities uh, perspective, it's not clear what this would actually add to Russia's capabilities. I mean, it's an extraordinarily crude weapon. There's no sign of any particular sophistication or even a pretense uh, that it would be targeted at um, legitimate military objects in ways that are consistent with the law of war. It, it does seem to be, I mean, it's it's noisy and slow to go across the ocean, relatively speaking, compared to a ballistic missile. I don't know what it adds in terms of military capability, but it is clearly pure and simple. It's a terror weapon. It's designed to you know, kill or traumatize the inhabitants of American coastal cities in a really sort of barbaric way uh, and to leave radiation in effect uh, in its aftermath in ways that could render those cities uninhabitable for a very long time. So that tells you depressingly much about where the Kremlin's head is here. This is, there's no way this could be anything but a giant war crimes uh, problem waiting to happen.
1: One of the issues that I talk about with uh, especially uniformed military personnel in this program all the time is the concept of weapons as a way of deterring war. What do we know from either a diplomatic or uh, some other type of interaction uh, with the Russians' perspective uh, about whether they plan weapons like this to try to deter us from uh, threatening them, or whether this is something they want to use proactively? Is there any way to tell that?
4: Uh, I mean, it would be a lot easier to have answers to those questions if Uh, the Russians were more willing to talk to us honestly and openly about their nuclear doctrine and and strategy and how they think about these things. Um, I would guess that there certainly is at least some deterrent uh, objective here. It's probably not a very good first strike weapon because, I mean, frankly, driving something at high speed through the ocean like that is probably going to be extraordinarily noisy. Um, And it's going to get there a lot more slowly than a ballistic missile that would fly through, you know, an easier medium like, you know, space or or the upper atmosphere. So, so it's not really a first strike weapon. It, but it, it does seem to be simply designed to to induce terror by expressly targeting civilians in ways that it's not at all clear that the law of war could ever allow Russia legally to do. Um, you know, that itself is a sort of a disturbing insight to how they think about war planning. Um, but I would imagine there is a there is a strong deterrent element in their thinking. But they have been maddeningly unclear about it. And I. I you know, it would be great if they were be able – if they would be willing to be more honest with U.S. diplomats uh, and open about these things. We could at least have the discussion as it is. Um, you, know, you see videos released on RT and lots of chest-pounding sort of propaganda, but, but relatively little actual thoughtful engagement and honesty about this in the way that responsible states really should talk to each other.
1: Uh, this uh, weapon could be, one, one version of it could be positioned at the uh, uh, the base that I referenced at the beginning of this conversation in the Arctic. What's your sense of how this weapon fits into Russia's Arctic strategy? Do we have visibility into their Arctic strategy at all?
4: I, I honestly don't know myself whether there's much of a connection between the Arctic strategy per se and this particular system. Russia has a very aggressive Arctic strategy, to be sure. And the Poseidon system is a, you know... A deliberately disturbing sort of uh, sort of thing. Um, um, my guess would be, I mean, I don't know enough about exactly what the environment is under the ice, for example, in the Arctic. But I would think that uh, you know, transiting the deep Pacific might be a better operational pattern for them. So I would be more concerned about this crossing the Pacific or conceivably the Atlantic, I guess, uh, as a way to uh, you know, to threaten coastal cities um, rather than, for example, the North Shore of Alaska which is a different, that's a different target set entirely if you're simply talking about something designed to, to terrorize and kill civilians.
1: What do we know about the development of this, the evolution of it, how close it may be to operational capability, Chris?
4: Um, well, I probably shouldn't say much about what we think we understand about those details insofar as a lot of that may well be classified. Um, they have bragged about it. There was a very strange purported leak a number of years ago um, of some, some footage that purported to show some sort of designs or concept plans for for this thing uh, under a different name at the time. Um, but then Putin went rather public in March of 2018 with his, his sort of infamous bragging about a whole range of new exotic strategic delivery systems that, um, you know, he seemed to feel very Proud of, which is a strange thing to boast about in the modern era when everyone's talking about trying to figure out how we can live together better with the the, the dangers of of nuclear weaponry. But you know that's sort of how he operates. Um, so they've made it a, a an object of much bragging and boasting and to some degree bullying. But um, its specific operational capabilities they have not spoken uh, much about publicly at least.
1: We have about 30 seconds left, Chris, to the point of uh, the internal uh, conversations that Putin is having. How much of that could be attributed potentially to his desire to continue to portray himself as the strong leader of that country?
4: Oh, I think this is exactly the sort of thing. Uh, you know, This is the nuclear equivalent of uh, the braggadocio of taking your shirt off and riding around like a fool on a horse. Um, it's... Not useful for anything in concrete terms that I think a serious war fighter or a, you know, a military lawyer concerned with compliance with the law of war uh, would be interested in. But it's great to, um, to, to boast and brag and show that you or try to show uh, that you're um, uh, being important and scary person on the world stage. And that seems to be that seems to be really the objective of uh, their foreign policy as much as anything.
1: Chris Ford, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program.
4: Thanks for having me. Take care.
1: Up next, money changes coming to your pay. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the government changes, who makes what for working where. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. The Office of Personnel Management is working on new guidance on locality pay. Remote work in the pandemic could make the agency rethink who gets paid what to work where. Jeff Pond's national co-chair of the Training and Development Optimization Council, he's former director of the Office of Personnel Management. Jeff, welcome. It's great to see you again. I quote Rob Shriver of OPM, who asked this question recently, I think rhetorically, What are we going to do now if we have large segments of the federal workforce that aren't coming into the office and that are working from around the country? I pose that question to you, not rhetorically. What does that look like? How does that impact the way the agency should think about locality pay?
3: Yeah, I think that's the the right question to actually answer. Um, The world has changed. It's not business as usual. Uh, We have uh, telework and remote policies that were pre-pandemic in terms of trying to create flexibility for where you worked and, and how you worked. Uh, now, things have changed. Over 73% of the federal government works in some form or telework. And before the pandemic, it was only 3%. Most private sector and public sector companies have remote workers. So we're gonna see a slow progression towards opening back up sites, sites for work. But many of the questions that we have in government are really appropriate for this time, which is such as Senator Langford uh, talked about uh, with the nominee for the director, questioned her on whether or not we have jobs that we can uh, move to remote locations and have that as permanent, uh, permanent type of situations. He also brought up uh, uh, the military spouses program so we can promote military spouses working remotely for the government wherever they're stationed. So these are some of the great ideas that are coming out because of this situation. And I think OPM and take a leadership role in conducting that with agencies.
1: Is there a risk at nibbling around the edges on things like locality pay and maybe missing out on an opportunity to rethink the entire shape of the federal workforce, Jeff? Because as you describe those issues there, they all sound like things that somebody, I'm picking on Congress here, could turn into individual elements that somebody should do something about, i.e. right legislation, when in reality they should probably all be thrown into a pot and, and everybody involved think about all of these things together all at once?
3: I think you're dead on right there because what we do here in government, uh, in the legislature and also in OPM, we do nibble around the edges. We talk about locality, we talk about uh, GS pay and, and different types of things like that, but we don't couple them together like the rest of the world does. So when you think about this GS system, it talks about occupational codes and different types of steps and grades, and it really then does add locality. In the rest of the world, you look at, uh, you know, sources like salary.com or Payscale or Indeed, or, uh, you know, ADP, Bureau of Labor Statistics, they have current salary data that is sensitive to occupations as well as where they're living. So why don't we actually become more sensitive to how you work, where you work, work where you live or live where you work and have that type of debate as wholesale change. Because fact of the matter is there's large amounts of our population, not just in the federal government, that have left the cities and have gone to places like suburbs and like there's a mass exodus from California going to Texas, Austin, Texas, the tech work. And you're gonna see that permanency of workers being based out of those those areas and our federal systems aren't as sensitive to locality pay uh, coupled with the different types of gs occupations i'll give you a good example a a truck uh, trucker in chicago high cost of living callers are a lot in in chicago but there's less of a demand for a truck worker there and there is, in, for instance, in Texas and Tennessee, where there's large distribution hubs for uh, Walmart and Federal Express and, and Amazon. So we haven't even taken into account of those different types of factors, whereas the rest of the world, including our contractors, have those factors at play. So it's a great opportunity for us to actually refresh the sensitivity, fidelity, and equity that we have in our merit system systems.
1: We just have a little bit more than a minute left, Jeff, and the discussion that's going on all across government is interesting to me, too. FCW reports they had a non-for, uh, not-for-attribution roundtable about this uh, last week. And one of the participants, a uh, a federal executive, said, do I deserve to pay somebody who's living in Ohio the same salary I'd pay somebody who lives in D.C.? The agencies are thinking about this, too, as it pertains to their bottom lines, aren't they?
3: They are. And again, I think I'm going back to my uh, former response, which is look at what the market actually holds for that type of occupation, that type of person with that experience in that place and you'll see the different types of market for a uh it worker in cybersecurity in chicago in dc in in florida in places that we don't even have federal workers right now that are just remote we need to start using that data and the way in which we actually set up the the salaries right now aren't as sensitive time sensitive uh for the last several decades and we need to start updating that because uh you know the employees when they're negotiating uh different types of uh, salary and even wages uh, they have these tools out there that show you what what you're worth in different types of markets and we need to pay attention to that as a employer of choice
1: jeff pond thanks very much as always
3: thanks for having me again francis
1: don't forget if you miss an episode of government matters it's on our website govmatters.tv and you get a preview of every show When you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software-defined wide-area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff.
1: Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's assistant vice president for government solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions to do the network modernization that they need to do?
5: It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa- faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the, the services available to to the government at the time, were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the network's contract. So, Um, The the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the Managed Broadband Services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was, what the agencies were sort of presented with was here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of of, of, uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities That uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them. Um, But they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a uh, a plan for transforming. And it didn't. Many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging. So it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen though.
1: You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider. Why does that matter to agencies, and and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony?
5: The concept concept is really helpful because the the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They, 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 have this, they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and, and encouraged to use and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today, every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the, the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time, and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies, and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then. Um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN.
1: Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.